Welcome to the Social Policy Connections audio podcast. The following podcast features a lecture delivered by the Honourable Alistair Nicholson titled Human Rights and the Northern Territory Intervention. The talk was presented to Social Policy Connections on Wednesday, December the 1st at the Study Centre Yarra Theological Union. If you would like to attend one of our events, please refer to our website www.socialpolicyconnections.org.au Please feel free to subscribe to our podcast via iTunes or via an RSS feed located on our website's home page as we will be publishing podcasts regularly free of charge. The Northern Territory intervention introduced in 2007 has caused great anger, frustration and despondency amongst the majority of Aboriginal people in the Territory. The intervention required the suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act. Alistair Nicholson has been at the forefront of fighting to change the legislation to ensure full restoration of the Racial Discrimination Act. In his talk, he provided more details about this issue and how all concerned with Aboriginal well-being might respond. The Honourable Alastair Nicholson, AO, RFD, QC, is the former Chief Justice of the Family Court of Australia. He is an Honorary Professorial Fellow at the Law School of the University of Melbourne. And now, the Honourable Alastair Nicholson.
when I went to the family court, I was troubled because the family court operates all through, throughout Australia. And when I visited the territory in particular, I was troubled that there seemed to be no uh, understanding on the part of our people, of uh, the people who lived in the territory, the Aboriginal people who lived there. And they seemed, to, if anything, to be scared of the court and scared of anything to do with courts, and probably for good reason if you look at their history. But I felt there was something we could do, do about that because in the family court we were not simply there to uh, adjudicate on, on cases. Uh, we had a very substantial counselling service in those days. And uh, one of the things that we regarded as our, as, as our primary function was to assist people to resolve disputes over children uh, and uh, <coughs> property if necessary. Um, and uh, we did that preferably by counselling and assisting them. And uh, as such, uh, we instituted a program in, co in consultation with Aboriginal communities in the Territory and in far north Queensland and asked them how we could assist in the process of uh, de delivering those services to their communities. And we received a very warm response to that. Uh, I don't think we were used to being consulted in that way. Uh, they said, well, the first thing you should do is to actually engage some of our people as uh, your employees uh, to act as a bridge between the, between the uh, white community, the court, and Aboriginal people. And we did that, and we actually engaged members of the Aboriginal community to assist us in, in, in appointing people so that we had a, an all-the-way cooperation with them. Uh, all our uh, Aboriginal family consultants uh, were very successful in doing the task that we wanted them to. Uh, they went out into the remoter areas of the Territory. Uh, we uh, sent councillors with them. Most, of them. most, if not all of them, actually finished up with uh, professional qualifications in mediation uh, as a result of uh, being employed by the court. And overall, <coughs> it was a program of which I was very proud. And although it was on a comparatively small scale, it seemed to me to have some lessons anyway. Uh, about uh, what you can do when you treat people uh, as intelligent people with whom you're dealing and, and involve them in the activities that you're pursuing rather than telling them what to do, as so often uh, white people have done in Australia in the past. My remarks tonight are based on a lecture that I delivered at the University of Melbourne on the 11th of November of this year, so I apologise in advance to any of you that may have been present on that occasion because you'll find this a bit repetitious. <clears throat> but I want to talk about a little bit about uh, human rights and, and the need for a Bill of Rights in Australia. And that's based upon my experience in the law, where I feel that uh, ordinary human rights tend to be ignored in this country, and if it suits government, uh, they will trample all over them. I don't think any political party can be trusted to do otherwise. And therefore, uh, it's my firm view that the only real protection uh, that uh, we as citizens uh, can have, and including the Aboriginal citizens, is the protection of the Bill of Rights, but we're a long way from achieving that. Australians, uh, particularly conservative Australians, I believe have an irrational fear, an irrational fear of the enforcement of human rights. It's a strange paradox in a country that in many ways has been a world leader in promoting international human rights instruments and has not been slow to criticise human rights breaches by others. But it doesn't seem to occur to most Australians or Australian politicians that such criticisms, criticisms would have much greater force 
we paid the same regard for human rights within our country uh, as uh, we do in respect of others elsewhere. And Australia, of course, is, is one of the few countries and probably the only Western country that does not have a Bill of Rights. Uh, and indeed, only a few countries such as Brunei and Burma uh, lack such an instrument. That doesn't mean that everyone follows human rights around the world, they don't. But in countries that have a judicial system and are democracies, uh, a Bill of Rights is largely regarded now as an essential protection uh, for of the freedoms of people living in the country. The United States gathered that in 1791. Uh, a few other countries have slowly but steadily adopted the same view, including probably the country closest to Australia in terms of history and, uh, and development, Canada, which has had a, an enforceable charter of rights since the 70s. But every attempt to, in Australia to introduce a Bill of Rights has been a failure, largely, I think, through lack of leadership and uh, lack of political will. And in fact, it's, I think, disgraceful to read what the Australian Human Rights Commission has said this year. <coughs> it says, the, it's it, entrenched guarantee of equality, non-discrimination in the Constitution is a particular concern due to current laws that discriminate against Indigenous people on the basis of race. While there are federal, state and territory discrimination laws, there are inconsistencies between them and their coverage varies and is not comprehensive. There is no other comprehensive human rights protection legislation and access to remedies for human rights breaches is accordingly limited. And again, a group of Australian NGOs in a submission to the UN Universal Periodic Review of Human Rights this year listed 16 separate areas where Australia has failed to meet its human rights obligations. Relevantly, for the present purposes, they include Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, rights of children, housing, homelessness and poverty. So it's a pretty sick uh, situation, to, to me anyway, that uh, we should be uh, uh, almost an international pariah uh, in areas such as this. The Rudd government set up a national human rights consultation chaired by Father Frank Brennan, which reported in September of 2009. I can't in this context do justice to that 450-page report, but importantly, it did recommend a Human Rights Act for Australia. It's a good report, uh, made it clear that uh, the concept of human rights legislation was widely supported in Australia. The legislation was, they proposed was pretty mild legislation that didn't give the courts, for example, any power to enforce it, which I think is a mistake. Uh, but even that proved uh, too much for our timid and cautious government, who uh, largely shelved the report. Uh, and uh, didn't uh, put in, into effect, or did fail to put into effect most of its recommendations. So the only promising uh, sign on the human rights front in Australia has been from the states and territories, with Victoria and the ACT enacting charters uh, that uh, have, uh, as far as I can see, operated quite effectively. And uh, even uh, though we have a newly elected Conservative government, I don't recall any aspect of their policy suggesting that uh, we should go away from the concept of a human rights charter in this state. And I hope that remains the case. And uh, why can't the answer, the question really is, why can't we adopt the same sort of approach as other countries, and, and even federally? The Brennan Committee talked about a lack of, underst of understanding among Australians of what human rights are, and that support for an improved human rights culture was strong. And many submissions referred to the need for greater human rights education or the development of human rights ethos in the community. Well, that's all fine, I agree with that, but why are we so backward in this area? 
and, and, and that's what I don't understand. It really begs the question of why we have such a different approach or a greater degree of ignorance than other Western democracies. But again, I think it comes back to a lack of leadership. Uh, I think you can say that about a lot of the aspects of our political scene over the last year, few years. Decisions seem to be whole-driven or based upon views of anonymous focus groups. There appears to be little or no attempt to lead public opinion uh, as distinct from following what various focus groups and polls suggest is public opinion. Historically, our political parties, particularly the ALP, uh, has uh, given leadership uh, in these areas, but uh, that hasn't occurred, I, I suggest, since, from the ALP's point of view, since the Whitlam government. And it was the Whitlam government, incidentally, which passed the Racial Discrimination Act in 1975, which is, which is the only re relevant piece of human rights legislation in Australia that provides some protection uh, to Indigenous people. And I'll come to how it was treated by the Howard government and by the present government shortly. Until last month, there was a complete silence about the possibility of constitutional recognition of Indigenous people, apart from a vague statement from the Minister's office in mid-2010. On the 8th of November of this year, however, Prime Minister Gillard announced the appointment of a committee to report on ways of achieving constitutional recognition for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, with a view to holding a referendum to achieve this in conjunction with the next federal election. <coughs> I suggest that this is an important initiative, but I think it comes too late. And I, I wonder about the value of appointing yet another committee, given what happened to the Brennan Committee on Human Rights. And I wonder whether this is just another uh, piece of, uh, of, of smokescreen uh, to give the impression that the government's doing something. Uh, I'm also pretty doubtful about holding referenda in conjunction with an election, given the highly political charge, politically charged atmosphere uh, in which elections are conducted. And uh, I think one of the great pities is that uh, Kevin Rudd uh, didn't seize the moment uh, when he gave the apology to uh, uh, the Aboriginal people, why he didn't seize the moment then to talk about a referendum and, and talk about conferring real rights on Aboriginal people. I think that's one of the great opportunities missed. I'm not saying I'm opposed to this referendum, I'm not, but I'd like what I'd like to see is a real a real proposition, not some bit in the preamble that makes everyone feel good but there's no legal effect. I think that's the real danger about what's going to happen. Because, of course, the opposition has already said that that's all it will agree to. And if it opposes uh, a proper reform, the history of referenda in Australia suggests that it won't be passed. Again, that would be, I think, a tragedy. So, my view, for rights to flow to our Indigenous people, it's essential that there be a substantive commitment to the text of the Constitution. I think if ever there was an argument for that, uh, it's the Northern Territory Emergency Response of the Howard Government, which is popularly described as the Northern Territory Intervention. Uh, there's no more graphic example of the need for human rights protection than the events that surrounded uh, that intervention uh, and the events that have occurred since present government. I won't go into all the detail of the history, I'm sure you're familiar with it, but just to remind you of a couple of facts. In June 2007, the Prime Minister and the Minister for Indigenous Affairs announced the intervention in the Northern Territory, ostensibly to protect Aboriginal children from sexual and other abuse. It was a strange uh, 
response from the Howard government, whose relation, his relationship with Indigenous people was always questionable, and he'd shown little empathy or understanding of them, but had firmly persisted in his refusal to apologise for their past mis mistreatment. <clears throat> he'd abolished their only representative body without replacing it, and uh, his government's real commitment to Indigenous people and their rights could be gauged by its opposition to signing the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which, to its credit, the Rudd government reversed that stance uh, during the course of its, uh, of its time. Apart from Howard Brough, of course, was a comparatively new minister, a Queenslander with an army background, and the can-do approach, which sometimes is a good thing. But in his case, uh, I think there were problems, and I have an abiding memory of him the first time I ever saw him. He addressed a homelessness conference at which I was speaking in Sydney in 2006. And he managed to demonstrate his contempt for Aboriginal people to such an extent that a large percentage of his audience, including most of the Aboriginal people there, and there were many of them there, uh, walked out. And uh, this is a man who had just acceded to that position and was the man who was responsible for Aboriginal affairs in Australia. So it came to me as, it came as no great surprise to me uh, when the events surrounding the intervention unfolded because we had two people without any real regard for Aboriginal people at all in control of the, in control of the situation. A very dangerous com uh, combination. And of course, Brufford, uh, before the actual intervention, had tried a, a few mini-interventions of his own, including forcing 99-year leases of townships uh, on uh, traditional owners very unsuccessfully, uh, and uh, uh, dealing with uh, neglecting remote area housing and, uh, and so on. I think those failures of Ibrahim gave a real indication as to the motivation for the intervention, which had a lot more to do about with land than it did about children, and a lot more to do about destroying Aboriginal culture uh, than it had about protecting their children. But you'll remember there was a series of events involving some particularly troublesome crimes and issues relating to children, which actually played in the government's hands and I think made the intervention possible. Under pressure, the Mountain Government and the Northern Territory announced an inquiry. The inquiry was conducted. It was a good inquiry. It, it, was, uh, uh, it uh, reported uh, a serious situation and called for urgent action. Uh, but it emphasised, as part of that action, the need for real consultation and ownership by the communities of the solutions. And, of course, what happened was, six days later, the federal government intervened, entirely without consultation with the Indigenous people, and it ignored all the substantive recommendations of that report to which it was purportedly responding. That was just simply used as a trigger to further the government's policies, and I believe without any regard for the interests of children concerned. I was uh, reminded of, the, of this uh, when I read, uh, I was sent by uh, Michelle Harris, uh, a report by uh, uh, Jack Water Waterford uh, of the 11th of September 2008, in which uh, uh, he uh, commented uh, the intervention led by a major general and a, and a suspended magistrate, each with a personal PR advisor, plus an army of white bureaucrats chosen chiefly for having no background, history, understanding of or experience in Aboriginal affairs, lest they be contaminated by association with past failure, has spent probably about a billion so far on a crusade to save Aborigines from themselves and supposedly Aboriginal children from their parents. And he went on to point out that, that in fact, uh, this vast uh, cloud of uh, advisors and doctors and PR men and others uh, had uh, 
examined uh, thousands of children, uh, but uh, the results, uh, the resident uh, paediatricians reported that, to our knowledge, only one child in Central Australia has been identified with significant health, significant health problems that was not already known. It was in 2008, probably a few months since, but that was the extent of it. And if you look at what happened, what's happened since, there's been no improvement in Aboriginal health and no improvement in child health. So what was it all about? Well, what it was all about, the first thing they did was to suspend the Racial Discrimination Act in relation to those, to those territories, uh, those Aboriginal communities, some 78 of them throughout the territory. So what they were really saying is, we are now going to discriminate against you on the grounds of race. And we can do that because we control both houses of the parliament and you haven't got any rights. Then what followed? There was the policy of income protection, removal of social security benefits, uh, where the parents reside in an area of the, an area of the Northern Territory that the government didn't want, uh, where a child had an unsatisfactory attendance at school. Uh, the acquisition of Aboriginal lands by means of compulsory leases of up to five years' duration. What did that have about? What did that have to do with protecting children? Uh, there were restrictions on the use of alcohol and pornography on Aboriginal lands. Well, certainly there were problems about alcohol and pornography. We know that, uh, but the problems were probably much greater in the white community. I would suggest than in the, uh, the in the Aboriginal communities, or well, certainly as great. And uh, we didn't see too many sex shops being shut in Darwin or Alice Springs. Uh, and so on. And then, of course, the abandonment of the Community Development Employment Program, which meant that uh, uh, a program that had worked very well, it was introduced by the Fraser government, uh, and gave people a, a real stake in what they were doing in their communities, was, was abandoned, and uh, they were forced back effectively onto the dole. So those were the measures of the, uh, of the Howard government. Uh, but the suspension of the Act uh, involved a direct attack, I suggest, on the rights and freedoms of Indigenous people that should never have been countenanced. But it was essential to enable the intervention to proceed. Now, by cloaking itself in the guise <coughs> of conducting a crusade to protect children, the government was able to uh, brand those who opposed it as being in favour of child abuse. And because it controlled both houses of Parliament, it was able to override the protection of the Act. Uh, the, all of this was uh, exacerbated by the precipitate way in which it acted without consultation with the Indigenous people, or indeed with people with child protection expertise. And it, by treating them in this way, it demonstrated a clear lack of respect, which they were very conscious of. I think as, as time passes, it becomes clear that the intervention was an exercise in social engineering intended to destroy Aboriginal culture and Aboriginal attachment to traditional lands to force Aboriginal people into suburban agglomerations and uh, force them to adopt a white, a white lifestyle. And uh, I think one of the most shameful aspects of the affair was that the present government, then in opposition, voted in favour of the legislation without, without any criticism whatever. And one would seriously question the leadership that that stance displayed. I thought at the time that it took that approach to avoid giving the government an election issue, and that might be part of the reason. But what it's done since suggests that it actually agreed with the proposals in the intervention and has carried them on. And I think that's one of the most troublesome things that uh, we're faced with uh, today. <coughs> because the advent of the right government brought new hope uh, to those who would advance the position of Indigenous people. 
and the Prime Minister did deliver an elegant and heartfelt apology, which I'm sure many of you would have heard. Certainly, thank you. Certainly it gave me a lot of hope and, uh, and, uh, and a lot of expectation uh, that things were about to happen. That was coupled uh, with the uh, proposal to support the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. So all looked pretty good at that stage. Nothing that happened there. Everything stopped after that. That was the last positive initiative that the Rudd government took in relation to these matters. The intervention was not abandoned, or several aspects were alleviated, but in a very cosmetic way. But it's proved to be a costly failure. None of the recommendations were put into effect. The, the Rudd government did say in its election policy proposals for the 2007 election that it would reinstate the Racial Discrimination Act. Uh, and uh, again, nothing happened until 2010. And in 2010, deeply flawed legislation purporting to reinstate the, the Act was passed by the Parliament, which will not take effect until the 31st of December. So three and a half years after government had promised to reinstate the Act, it still hasn't done so, although it claims that it's in the process of doing it. But in fact, what it's done is to show a single-minded determination to continue with most of the objectionable aspects of the intervention, which it now seeks to characterise as special measures under the reintroduced Act. Thus, the government takes as it, as it gives, seeking to preserve some of the worst aspects of the intervention and the racism that accompanied it while reportedly re reintroducing the act that's meant to protect people from, uh, from uh, racist uh, behaviour of this sort. Uh, the 2010 legislation preserves income management uh, by a sleight of hand trick. It now says, oh, it's not discriminatory because it applies to white people as well, but of course it applies in geographic areas which uh, where the great majority of people are Aboriginal. So uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thinly disguised exercise of maintaining the discriminatory, discriminatory position. And the remainder of the legislation covers alcohol pornography restrictions, compulsory five-year leases, licensing of community stores, extending powers to the Crime Commission, and they're all sought to be justified as special measures. Now, I won't bore you with the detail of what a special measure is, but there have been a number of Australian court decisions and a number of UN pronouncements on this subject, which provide that to be a special measure, it has to confer a benefit on some or all members of the class. Uh, it must be for the sole purpose of securing adequate advancement of the beneficiaries so that they equally exercise rights and freedoms. And the circumstances must provide uh, protection in order that they can enjoy rights and freedoms. And it also suggests that it's necessary to obtain the, the, the wishes of the affected people before you do this. Well, of course, they did it. There was no attempt to obtain the, uh, the wishes of the people concerned, and uh, none of the present government's measures satisfy the requirements for consultation and obtaining the agreement of Aboriginal people. The government, uh, of course, claims that it did consult the Aboriginal people as to these measures, but it just doesn't stand up that it did. Uh, the only hard evidence of its so-called consultation makes it clear that the consultation was not consultation at all. My original involvement in the these issues arose from a request that I view the videos that were taken of four of these alleged consultations, and that's been the subject of a report uh, 
uh, which has been widely publicised in the past, was launched by uh, Malcolm Fraser and um, at Melbourne University. <coughs> Professor Larissa Brent was the leader of the team that uh, produced that report. Um, they and I formed a very clear view that this consultation was a sham, it was a farce, and it did not have the support of, of the Aboriginal people. And yet, the Minister has kept saying ever since that uh, uh, she has that, she had these consultations and they do have support, and this only related to a few uh, isolated uh, consultations that, where that produced a different result. But she's failed to produce any evidence of the other ones. And in fact, all the evidence goes the other way. Uh, the government actually presented the people with a fait accompli, and uh, despite a flood of spin uh, from the Minister's office, uh, that was uh, what they were offered. Uh, and of course, the events since then, uh, June 2010 survey of Aboriginal elders from 24 communities, revealed that 97% believe they've not consented to the current intervention measures. 88 did not believe that, 88% didn't believe they'd been genuinely consulted. Two of those elders, Reverend Eugenie uh, Gondara and uh, Rosalie Cunot Monks, after taking part in a conversation held at Melbourne Law School in May of this year, presented a report to the UN Commission Committee rather, on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination <coughs> at Geneva in August 2010. The report are available at the table over there. The committee has since uh, reported in highly critical terms of Australia in relation to this issue. And uh, the committee has urged, the UN Committee has urged the State Party to fully reinstate the Racial Discrimination Act, uh, including the use of the Act to challenge and provide remedies for racial discrimination in the Northern Territory Emergency Response, and so on. And uh, I won't read it all to you, but uh, it's, it's a stringent uh, criticism of this country. It comes from a respected UN uh, committee. Uh, following submissions made to it by respected Aboriginal elders. But I know it's fashionable in Australia to ignore and resent international criticism of its behaviour towards its indigenous people, just as, of course, as it was in South Africa during the uh, apartheid era. And in some ways, I'm a little reminded of that uh, when I hear the sort of responses that government tends to produce to these issues. The reality is that this is an international issue that costs Australia dearly and will continue to do so until these situations corrected. I think it's a matter of urgent national importance that this be done, because if it's not, I don't think we can ever aspire to true nationhood if we don't manage to develop a, a respect and, and reconcile the situation of our indigenous people. We can never become a country that's regarded with respect throughout the world. As an Australian, now getting an increasingly older Australian, I find that a, a matter of deep concern. I'm sick of being ashamed of this country and I don't see why we should continue to put up with it. The government, however, not only fails to understand this but continues to behave as if the criticisms have no substance. It's currently engaged, and I say currently, in policies towards traditional owners of Aboriginal land that are a little short of blackmail. They've come, brought the leases down from 99 years to about 40 years. Uh, but, uh, in effect, traditional owners are being placed in an impossible position because uh, the government is saying, we'll only provide housing to you if you grant us these leases. They, of course, feel that uh, they're letting their own people down if they don't accept the housing. On the other hand, they feel that they're letting their own people down if they let the government take over this land for such a long period. Because, again, no one seems to understand the connection 
between, between Aboriginal people and the land uh, to the extent that they should. And as I say, the passage of a referendum paying lip service to uh, Indigenous peoples of preamble, I don't think will fool anybody into believing that we've changed our approach. <coughs> because what we need are deeds and actions and not empty words. We shouldn't tolerate this sort of conduct. We're dealing with a people, with a culture, one of the world's oldest cultures, and their history extends <coughs> thousands of years. It's also our, our, it's our history as part of the history of our great land, and we should embrace these people and be proud that they're living proof of a great heritage. In the paper that I delivered at the university, which I've reproduced in shorter form here, I'd set out a number of dot points that I think, <coughs> as to what I think should happen. I'll just briefly uh, run through them. I think the first thing is that the government should withdraw the flawed legislation purporting to, to restore the Racial Discrimination Act and re re reintroduce it in a proper and unqualified form. It should bring all aspects of the Northern Territory Convention to an end. It should cease forcing Aboriginal traditional owners into executing unconscionable leases and it should, uh, with their consent, cancel existing ones that they forced on them in this way. It should provide proper housing and education services, and it should do so without tying them to land tenure. In order to return control of Aboriginal lands of Aboriginal people, it should restore ASIC or an equivalent body to take Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Island people into partnership as part of this nation and give them proper representation. At the very least, it should provide proper health and education services to all Australians, regardless of race or location. It should end the mistreatment of Aboriginal children and reduce family violence and alcoholism and enlist Aboriginal people, most importantly, to achieve, help achieve those ends. And it should, as I've said, amend the Constitution in a meaningful way and introduce human rights legislation to protect the rights of all Australians, including Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Now, how can we achieve these results? It's already what for me to say this. But uh, it's, a, it's a really a big ask. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a lengthy shopping list. I think all we can do is what we're doing tonight. We can inform uh, ourselves and others of the real situation in the Northern Territory. We must be prepared to tell our elected representatives that that behaviour will no longer be tolerated. And we can do that by email, text, letter or telephone to the Prime Minister's office and the offices of our local members. I tend to be quite responsive to these sorts of campaigns, providing they get enough, enough people doing it. Well, they do start to get worried, I think, when uh, people are expressing concerns along these lines. But of course, we can, combine, we can combine with others to achieve change. Last month, for example, I had the honour of attending a meeting in Sydney of a number of interested people, including Patrick Dodson and others, and a mixture of Aboriginal and, uh, and uh, uh, white Australians present. And it was aimed at creating a dialogue and an alliance to change the attitudes of Australia towards Indigenous people. What we're hoping to do is to draw together even people who are, who are indifferent to or, or opposed to uh, doing something in this regard, because we believe that by setting up a dialogue and discussing it, there may be some chance that uh, we can together change opinion. And there are, of course, organisations like Reconciliation Australia deserve our, our, report, our support. And there are groups like Concerned Australians, Stop the Intervention Now, others like you, who are doing work to, great work to bring these <coughs> abuses to public attention. 
And above all, we mustn't sit passively and let our fellow Australians continue to be treated as they have been since white settlement. So I hope those remarks have been of some interest to you, and I hope I haven't taken too long uh, in, in delivering them. But uh, uh, I look forward to uh, the responses, and I also look forward to some discussion shortly. Thank you very much.